What the hell are you guys even talking about? Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds comic podcast, episode 84. I'm the goddamn madman. And I'm joined by some other nerds. Ryan. Hello. And Carissa. Hi. Together we take on this week's comics. Each week we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now, go read your week's books, and then come back. Each week one of us picks their favorite book. That's our pick of the week. This week, I am that thieving bastard of a nerd. This week, the pick of the week goes to All New Guardians of the Galaxy, number seven. Our companion song is Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty because at the very end of this issue of Guardians of the Galaxy, you see a saxophone, and the most epic saxophone song of all time has to be Baker Street. If you don't believe me, go watch Rick and Morty. It's at the end of one of those, and it just gets stuck in your head so that every time you see a saxophone, you'll think of this song. Let's take a listen. I can't believe they brought that back around from that one weird dream sequence. <laughs> oh, the Sax Man? <laughs> yeah. The Drax Man? <laughs> okay, so All New Guardians of the Galaxy number 7 by Marvel Comics, The Horns of Doom. Written by Jerry Duggan, art by Greg Smallwood. This week's Guardians of the Galaxy is kind of a quick break to give a little bit of backstory and understanding. Comics sometimes will do this. Every issue in this arc is almost like a flashback. You had the initial heist with the Galactus robot and now every issue is each person's backstory. So this one happens to be Drax's backstory and it explains why he went from being this loud, boisterous destroyer of worlds to this kind of quiet, meditative monk and a bit of a pacifist. It's a, a flashback to after all the shit that went down on Earth when they left. He kind of took off and he went to a planet to blow off a little bit of steam, do some hunting, but then he found a bunch of slavers there and he just couldn't deal with that. So he decided to just fucking destroy the hell out of them. He goes through, and you just see Drax doing what Drax does. Punching fists through heads. Leaping through the air, knives in hand. There's nothing this more satisfying. Drax just fucking going all destroyer. So he's just ripping into these slavers, and he gets through all of them until the last one's left, and it's their king. And they're like these weird bug Viking slaver people. And the one runs at him, and he just turns around and goes all Drax on him, cuts him. He's not dead quite yet, but the slaves are like, peace, peace. And they're not very detailed in what the hell's going on. They're just saying, hey, dude, chill, calm down. And then he's just wanting to fucking destroy some shit and kill some things. So he cuts the fucking king's head off and... All of a sudden, you see the quake symbol on all of them. <laughs> all light up. <laughs> That's funny. You just see these blue veins go through all the slaves, and they all just drop fucking dead. And he's just like, oh, shit. The part where they're holding each other, it's pretty brutal. Yeah, it's not a pretty death. It's pretty horrifying, and it's kind of chilling to him. I mean, he's caused that much death, but in this particular case... Not of innocent people, though. Yeah, not of innocent people. He's a destroyer of, of evil and all that. He doesn't really like to hurt innocents. I mean, his whole vengeance against Thanos is because he wanted to get vengeance for the death of his wife and daughter. It just so happens that things get in his way and he destroys them. And that's kind of how Drax got his quote-unquote bad name throughout the universe is that he tore a hole through everything trying to get the Thanos. But that name turned on him. Oh, that was pretty good use of that. It was actually a good scene in there with the name thing because they're like, who are you? And he's like, I am Peter Quill. <laughs> because he's afraid that if he says Drax the Destroyer, they're all going to run for the hills. But he wants to say something 
something that's going to be not imposing and not terrifying or scary to anybody. Some sort of, you know, mild-mannered name that's weak and witless. Oh, that's not the part I was talking about, but yes, that part was funny. It's like the part where the people are choking and are dying from the poison, and he's like, the last thing they said was pretty damn clear, and it was destroyer. Because, well, he did destroy them, but it's not what his intention was. But it was poignant to him, Yeah, though. You just see him just standing in the middle of all this carnage, and it fucks with his head and from that point on he became the monk that he now is what this is all kind of leading up to i think is going to probably bring adam warlock back into the fold of marvel comics which is good because you're probably going to need that for some of the stuff they've got going on in the movies but you just see this epic fucking scene of drax in his old costume the purple tights and the purple cape and the weird kind of cowl thing that he had just wailing away on the sax and i just picture him playing baker street because that's really the only good sax song (laughs) and you see the inside the soul gem Gamora but she's like blind justice she's got like white hair and her eyes are covered up by cloth yeah there was an issue that was just Gamora yeah yeah she tore her eyes out oh and then you see him kind of back at the ship and he opens up this case and he has the costume and the saxophone in the case he looks at it kind of wistfully puts it back down slides it back in and that's the end of the book because I'm that nerd who has been reading comics since I learned how to read Heather McDonald, she became Moondragon. He's her dad. Now, what happened was Thanos came down and killed him and his family, and Thanos' dad used Drax, or the person who was Drax, to create Drax the Destroyer. But before he died, that guy from, you know, before he became Drax, he played the saxophone, among other things. So the sax is this really nice little thing, but just seeing Drax in is a classic costume costume wailing away in the sacks like he's in the middle of freaking lost boys on the beach <laughs> sex man it's just awesome recently they had drax in his perfect reality as like a famous saxophone musician gamora breaks into the hypnosis they're in all their dreams and brings him back out of it <laughs> it's like full-on glistening sweaty sax man like in that <laughs> issue <laughs> So anyways, what did you guys think? I like this artist. This is the same artist that did the Gamora issue recently. It was her reliving in her mind the time in the soul gem. These two books are connected in that way because we saw that flashback to the old Gamora that's haggard in there. And you find out in that issue that when you're trapped in that gem, that part of you is trapped behind and you won't be complete until you deal with that. And then there was another issue of this series where she told Drax, well, you were in there too. So this is just building on top of that, that they both have parts of them that they they need to extract from that gem. I like the art because it's, it is detailed, but it kind of has that kind of wispy, it's not as saturated colors. And so it's really interesting. It's kind of like colored pencils. Kind of. I like it because it's different, not because it's like my favorite art, but just that it's kind of a different take. The part with the slaves and them saying like barter, peace, and then just how his name is turned on him to have a different connotation that really sucker punched him, I thought was really neat. The issues where they do these kind of character building and insight, they're kind of hit and miss for me. Really didn't like the Gamora one. But I think this one is really insightful and impactful. You feel what happens to Drax. There's that picture you were talking about that's the full panel page of him just standing in all the dead bodies. And it's not a close-up of his face, but you can just see the loss and sadness and regret on his face. You feel it, too. It's one of those books. When those slaves die, they don't die quickly. It takes about two pages of 
pages with a lot of panels of them dying. So it really drags out their death. Like anguish and them huddled together. I think they contrast that when Drax fights the bad guys. He kills them real fast. You're not really supposed to feel much of an emotional weight to that. But when the innocent people die, it slows it way down. And that's a good contrast. The leader dude was not going down easily. He was taunting Drax. Like, no, you'll bend a knee even though he was already hurt. But I think it's funny how you say you don't like the Gamora issue, but it does really add more. Like, you kind of had to have known what was going on with that to make some of the points at the end of this issue make sense. I feel the Gamora issue was boring and long-winded and rather pointless. Long and drawn out and a little bit slow, but I think it built the key points that you need to see what's going on in this one as well. I think Matt didn't read it and he got everything, so... You can enjoy this one without reading that, but to understand that there's parts of them trapped in there and all that, what that entails, was in the Gamora one. I think overall this one was pretty good. It's going to be one of those gems that gets lost over time because it's not anything epic or world building. It shows where Drax is at right now, which when they need Drax to be Drax the Destroyer again, he's going to be Drax the Destroyer and this is all just going to be a memory. It's good for the story that we're going through right now. I think it's quite poignant. I agree. I think that's the word I'd use for it. I thought the art was really good i thought the writing was really good it was a really solid book i'm gonna give it four saxophones on a hill i'm gonna give it four my name's peter quill i think i will give it the highest rating which is a little surprising here of four and a half I was not always the way I am. When we're talking about loss and regret and poignancy, we're going to go over to Batman number 28 from DC Comics, The War of Jokes and Riddles Part 3, written by Tom King, Pencils and Inks by Mikhail Janin, Colors by Jun Chung. One thing I kind of am liking about The War of Jokes and Riddles is Batman has this thing where Batman always wins. If DC had a Bible for Batman, that would be part of it. He always wins. And in this one, you get the real sense that he loses here. That even if he triumphs in the end, the cost of what he had to endure and his weakness that he couldn't stop it because he's brand new Batman really is weighing on him. And I also like in this issue how they have the part with Catwoman where they're reinforcing that Batman is telling this story. There are a few parts where you get them saying things in the present overlaid in text boxes over what's going on over them actually saying the exact same things in the past, which I thought was kind of neat. This one is telling you how the Joker and the Riddler have split up the city and there's the park in the middle where Poison Ivy was with the Riddler when they were talking originally, and that's where this war zone is taking place, and they're just slaughtering each other. Every day for an hour, they have a ceasefire so that medics and people can come in and take away all the dead bodies, and then they resume their fighting. And during that time, Gordon left a letter for each of them saying that he wanted to talk. And I like the way they do this panel. At first, I didn't understand why it showed him both getting dressed and getting undressed at the same time. I thought that was kind of weird. And then you realize he's telling you the story of his meeting with each of the Joker and the Riddler, and each one responded in different ways to his letter. The Riddler's response to his letter was, they had a 37-page letter, and the Joker's response was, come in your undies. In lipstick, on the back of a dead guy. And you have this really cool split panel where you see him standing in front of the court of each of them. You see him standing in front of the Joker's court in his underwear, and then you see him in, it's almost like a prison outfit when he's standing in front of the Riddler and his court, and they each greet him in different ways. The Joker tells him a joke, and then the Riddler 
of course, in his entire court tell you this riddle that's actually a complicated pun, like play on words. I actually had to read it twice to get what they were saying. I thought it was pretty in-depth. I liked that. And you find out that each of them made Gordon the same offer. Turn over the Batman, and this stops, because the whole reason each of them is fighting is they each want different things from Batman. And Gordon refuses to do that, but he also won't let Batman go in because the Joker has the whole city rigged with bombs that he'll blow up, and the Riddler has guards with civilians that he'll start shooting people if they see the Batman. So Batman's talking about how the whole city is torn apart, and all these criminals are getting pulled in, and no one was able to refuse the offers except for one person. So Kite Man went to (laughs) Catwoman to make her an offer, and she throws him out a window, and he's falling to his death. And this is the part where you get the past and the present coming together in dialogue, where he's falling out the window, no kite, and Batman swoops in and grabs him, and you get Catwoman saying, I knew you were there, and Batman saying, I'm sure. And they say it both in the past and the present. I kind of like that. And then you see him talking to Catwoman, and she's saying that these people are all criminals, that they're like insane monsters that actually really suck at crime. And she's like a different cut of criminal. She's actually good at what she does and wants no part of this. And then you find out that Deadshot and Deathstroke are on opposite sides of the Riddler and the Joker. And they're having this sniper battle where they're each on buildings across the way and they're trying to shoot each other, but they're so perfectly matched their bullets keep hitting each other in the air, which I thought was actually pretty cool the way that they did it. I liked the bang panels they have where they're firing the guns and then you get the panels of the bullets coming towards each other, each one a different color. Then they hit each other in midair. So this war between the two of them spills out over five days where Batman is trying to stop them. This is the part that I actually really liked, one of the lines I liked, is he says, these are the world's greatest mercenaries and I'm only a year away from kicking trees. Because whenever they show Batman training montage for his Muay Thai, they show him chopping down trees by kicking them. So I liked emphasizing that Batman is just starting out here. So throughout this five-day battle, they start machine gunning civilians, they're blowing up buildings, and people are dying. And Batman can't stop them while he's trying to stop them. The Joker and the Riddler are able to do their things unopposed. So just all this death is spiraling out and Batman cannot stop it. He's able to rescue some people, like he rescues people from burning buildings, but the overwhelming majority of people, like hundreds of people are dying each day while these two are fighting. And then finally, Batman tracks them down and beats the living shit out of them. It's a moment where Batman, usually you see him being very controlled in most cases. And here he kind of loses his shit and beats them so badly they have to go to the hospital and have cranial damage repaired. Throughout all of this, at the both beginning and end of the book, Gordon and Batman are talking about how the city is falling and it's their job to catch it in their hands and lift it back up. I liked this issue a lot. I thought that the presentation of Batman is being very new and also not quite up to the task that he's being called for. I liked that a lot. I like seeing Batman vulnerable. What'd you guys think of it? I was almost going to pick this one for the issue of the week. The saxophone is really what got me for the the only (laughs) Guardians of the Galaxy. This was just fucking hardcore. Batman is getting desperate and everything is getting dark. I mean dark for Batman. This thing's heating up and I like the whole past and present thing. I noticed that too. I thought that was a really cool little trick there. I mean he's at his breaking point where he's about to go all Ender Wiggins on people. I mean he did. It was intense and I keep using this word but visceral. It's explaining why at the beginning of this the way he was starting to explain it to Selina about why this was such a 
deep, dark thing for him that he needs to get off his chest and explain it to her. I love that she was in the purple outfit in this. They're basically saying, look, he never fucking wore trunks, okay? (laughs) And I just realized that in this thing, she's wearing that old costume that everybody's used to, but we're back in the year two Batman, no trunks. (laughs) I think visceral is a good word to use for this because you feel the frustration and the helplessness that Batman has when he's going to town on those guys. You just feel the uncontrolled rage that he has and frustration. I don't know what else to do. I'm just going to beat this town to submission. I'm just going to start punching. (laughs) Carissa, what'd you think of it? I still think this series uh, and Tom King works recently in general just remind me why I like Batman while Batman is one of the one redeeming characters in the DC universe that I love. I love that it's told in a storytelling way because we get those flashback lovers telling a story to each other. The whole bringing it back to the dynamic between Selina and Bruce. I just really like that. Then also there's Kite Man in it so automatically some points up. (laughs) My favorite part besides Kite Man was the bat and the cat. I love that. Your part about Selina and Bruce and Catwoman and Batman. I like that there's Mm -hmm. a point where he's freaking out where he's telling her the story. He can't get the story out. Like he keeps kind of getting stuck on how long it took him to defeat them. That it took five days and all these people were dying during that time. And he says it multiple times and there's a part where she says bat? Bruce? Like she can't figure out who she's talking to at that point. I thought that was a nice little not exactly subtle but they didn't have to draw a highlighter underneath it uh, where you can see him sort of losing his shit even retelling the story. And you're talking about the way that Tom King writes. He never tells a story in a simple way. He always adds some element to his storytelling to it to elevate it up. I think in the end I will give it four. You're locked in a room with nothing but a table and a mirror. How do you get out? I'm gonna give it four and a half. They are unsuccessful criminals. I am a successful criminal. I'm going to give it four and a half special forces teams sent in, but zero walkout. Speaking of criminals, sexy criminals. Yes. Sex criminals, number 20, Image Comics, written by Matt Fraction and art by Chip Zdarsky. This is very bittersweet. It's sad. It starts off with showing John and Suze doing different things. John was clearly outrunning his sweet pink shorts, and Suze was in the bath making time stop. You could feel something building. Something's not right something's on their mind and then they get together and they're like the whole we need to talk and I think it's really interesting that they don't show the conversation of actually what they say to get to the point but they're clearly breaking up and then it goes to think cocaine and the doctor doing it and that's not the important part about that but what I really like is her conversation with him that's one of the best most insightful conversations you'll see in comics that's some real shit correct I stopped and reread it a couple of times because I was like damn I mean they've done this a lot in this series there's always a, something that's really insightful like the how you get a fetish and thing with as a kid thing that was really strong and really well written and very ac- it's just mind-blowing sometimes how to the point and good it is even though it's a hard subject this scene and how it's written is phenomenal it talks about the difference between need and want she's like no you didn't want to make me come you needed to make me come and then she goes in to explain what she means by that he needed to conquer her past in a way he wanted to show how virile and awesome like I got this sex worker as you put it to do that that makes me more of a big man it's a lot more in depth seriously it's a really good part go read it and she's really calm about it she's not mad she's just explaining to him I learned something new I didn't know what a rose uber botch was <laughs> I was trying to like tilt and see how that worked and I was like huh interesting thanks Chip <laughs> for that and then we see a little bit of Susie's friend who was dating the gynecologist and something's wrong with her you get a couple panels 
panels of her like in pain and not good and trying to reach out to Susie. Now the next panel is a full page panel and I personally love this panel. It shows what's on Susie's mind and what she's thinking about and then what John is stuck in thinking about. And this is why I was saying bittersweet because I think it's really sweet. All Susie is just John. It's heartbreaking that it's just John. That's all she sees. That's all she cares about. That's what she wants. She loves him. And while he was thinking of her, you see that he's just obsessed with revenge and the plot and everything that's going on with the sex police and all that. And it's just in his way. It's just that block. And that's really what's driving them apart. You see where they're at with each other. They even color his memories that he's having as the ones that are in the way are the ones that are in red. That was really sad. But then they still really do love each other. It's clear that they love each other. That's like not the problem. And they have one last get it on, even though they know it's wrong, given the situation, they totally still do it. And it's hot for them as always. It's just sad. It's not good. You show him leave. You show Susie's like heartbroken. And then John just goes off the rails. He's in Come World and he just goes up to. It was the one that wears like the dick sock. It's funny because you think he's in the quiet. You think he's frozen at first and he's trash in the office and saying, I'm going to fuck with you. And then as John storms out, the guy's like, oh my, what a challenge. He's like, and then you see the weird bus driver, sex police dude, like down there sucking his cock. I like in that scene how you see when John's not looking at him, you see his eyes moving. That That's a nice little indication that something's up. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they're keeping focused on the wide wiener dude, but we see him traveling. We see Hagelface again with a chubby bus driver one. It's like actually a weird moment where you kind of feel sorry for them or you see like maybe a softer side. Don't feel sorry for her, but him I feel sorry for. Where she's hearing about his problems, but she's actually being kind of sympathetic to him, which is surprising because we all hate her. He's in this relationship. He's mixed business with pleasure, but this guy is like an abusive fucker. He feels kind of trapped by the whole situation. And then we see John meet back up with the androgynous sex time stopper people that they met with before and they both apologize to each other and decide that they're going to have a plan and they're going to go after the whole thing that John wanted to do to begin with that he stopped doing because Suze is like no don't and then that's when we have the girl chick fest crying telling me I broke up with my boyfriend me I think I miscarried didn't know I was pregnant and sad time and it's really and it seems like that's probably going to be the theme since at the end of the book it says next time I don't know probably sex probably sadness well thanks Chip and Matt. These two together are able to be so insightful and truthful in a really direct and honest way that you don't get very often, especially not in comic books and especially not about time stop and sex hijinks comics. It's surprising how real their moments are in this book. You were talking about the moment with Jasmine St. Cocaine where she's talking about how he wasn't there having sex with her in the present. He was having sex with every version of her in the past. And there's actually a panel where he says like, how many of me are there in this room and you see pictures of her from all the different pornos yeah walking around the bed of them thought that was really cool and then the part where the girl is talking about the miscarriage and the breakup that's some real shit they really go for the jugular here and it's also funny and kind of ridiculous and all that too but those are the moments of the book that always surprise me i try to get people to read this book all the time and it's a hard sell when you tell them the basic concept of it stopping time with sex but no it's so worth it not only is it funny and over the top in that aspect which is good on its own it just has these really real moments and just conversations about relationships and everything else that I don't see really anywhere else. You get something in this book that you don't find anywhere else. That makes it really special. 
I like the fact that it had mid-credits scenes. Yes. It seemed kind of cinematic. It had that kind of feel to it. Those little one-page or a couple-page things, they just seemed literally like a Marvel mid-credits scene. I think so, too. I think it's the first time they broke it up like that, which I thought was neat. They need to fucking do that. (laughs) That was perfect. It worked perfectly in the book. It was this weird kind of almost Woody Allen-ish book. I can see that, yeah. That's just kind of how it felt. Postmodern-y. It's kind of hard for someone to come in if you haven't read the first issue. You really, for most image books, you got to start at number one. Because they're creator driven and they have a story to tell. So they don't need to think about, oh, come midway through. Image comics are intended to tell a story, not to be something that gets published for 50 years. You know, like a Spider-Man or Superman or something like that, where it's very repetitive. Nowadays. I love sex criminals. I really like what they have to say. I'm going to rate it. Yeah, I'm going to give this five. I didn't say stop sucking. (laughs) I will give it four. Maybe this isn't the best idea. I uh, will give it four mid-credit scenes. All right. This one's a long one. Oh, Jesus, is it? And it felt like a long one. It's maybe not the right thing to say after the last book. <laughs> That's why you have the Sausage King who Seriously? is wide rather than long. Back over Girth. Wide wieners. Oh, good lord. Back over to the New God special number one at DC Comics. To uh, some quote-unquote normal comics. Orion of New Genesis. Written by and pencils by Shane Davis. Inks by Michelle Delecky. Colors by Alex Sinclair. There's also some secondary and tertiary stories. Teeth of the Sea, a story of young Orion, written and pencils by Walter Simonson, colors by Laura Martin, and The Young Gods of Supertown, written by and pencils by Jack King Kirby, inks by Khalifa. That's what it says on the page, man. It wouldn't be an episode of Four Color Nerds if we did (laughs) not know how to pronounce somebody's name. Damn straight. So this is a special that is celebrating Jack the King Kirby's 100th birthday. Birth year, I guess. He'd be 100 this year. I don't know if this is placed in classic DC Universe or modern DC Universe because they kind of modified Orion a little bit with the new Wonder Woman books with the new 52. But with Rebirth happening, I don't know if they kind of backtracked a little bit. I feel like this is out of time. A little story of the new gods kind of thing. It kind of felt that way. At first I thought it was a new gods, like they were starting the stories up again. But then it seems like a classic new god story this is definitely an in the past kind of thing the first story in here is gatherer of the bugs comes to new genesis to get help ironically enough from orion who doesn't like the bugs with the new gods you've got the new gods and then you've got the denizens of apocalypse right part of the fourth world but there's like a dark fourth world and the light fourth world the new gods live over on the light side and dark side and all his buddies live over on the dark side but the high father and dark side made a deal and they switched kids so that you've got two good guys. One of them brought up by Darkseid and one of them brought up by Highfather. Darkseid's son gets brought up on New Genesis and that is Orion because he's brought up on New Genesis and he's trained in the ways of all the new gods and all the good guys. He's got the rage issues that all of Darkseid's people have but he's kind of able to keep them in so that he can focus this and this story is a story of brothers. You've got Calabac who is the quote-unquote favored son of Darkseid. He's the one who wants his father's attention. He wants to be like dear old dad. He wants to destroy things and be just this evil thing that causes corruption and hurt and pain and all this shit. But at the same point in time, he's working to create a thing to overthrow his father. And because there's a peace treaty between the two. So he's got this pit that they're building up to kind of overpower and take over New Genesis. But dad doesn't know about it because of the deal. They're not allowed to do it. It's basically illegal. So Bug goes up and tells the good 
good guys that it's happening and basically says, oh, we got to go down here and fix this shit. So Light Ray and Orion, they come down here. You get this really badass full page scene of them just kind of kicking some parademon ass. And you see him land and Calivac's like, fucking let's do it, brother. And you get something that would probably be really good in like the WCW or the WWF wrestling match with Orion, who's kind of semi-normal size, though he's big and buff, fighting Calibac, who is two or three times his size. He looks like a big fucking orc, and he's got this big rectangular cube for a fucking mace that's literally the size of Orion, and he just tries to beat Orion down with it, and Orion just grabs it, and he's like, I'm not having any of your shit. Like, no, you can't do that, brother. <laughs> he basically whacks him back and Calbeck comes running and he's just fucking pissed off and the apocalypse side is starting to come out and Light Ray is like, hey, we can't do that. You know, we got to deal with this and, you know, we'll fix things. And he grabs Light Ray's arm and he just snaps his wrist like it was a fucking twig. Light Ray drop. You can fix it because it's got a mother box, a, like headband thing. So he heals himself, but Orion's just fucking pissed off and his genetics, I guess, are kind of coming out and he just beats the ever-living fuck out of Calabac. I mean, it's just this end of Man of Steel fight between the two of them. Just grabs it and bends it completely backwards and you just see this look on Calabac's face. It's like, oh shit, I wasn't expecting this! And he hits him so hard that it literally knocks teeth out and you see them go flying and like blood and he's just full on rage monster at this point just wailing on Calabac and Calabac's like, do it, do it, beat the fuck out of me, kill me! And he's like, you know what, no, I'm gonna give you back to dad. <laughs> You can see he's physically different when he's all rage beast out. You can see the dark side coming out at him. But he calms down and he kind of keeps control and then he goes back to being pretty. Cause, so you know, the pretty people are the good ones and the ugly people are the evil ones. Whips out a mother box, he opens up a boom tube and shoves him back through there, which is probably the cruelest thing he could have done because dark side has absolutely no fucking pity. I'll remind everybody that dark side's whole purpose is to find the anti-life equation, which allows him to fuck everything. Just destroy everything, bring about Ragnarok, the apocalypse, all the horrible things. But Orion gets back, the victorious have shut down the pit, and like, Light Ray, I'm really sorry, he's feeling bad, and he's like, eh, don't worry about it, we did it. So they kind of head back off to New Genesis, but it ends with the whole, I'm Orion in New Genesis. Then you see another kind of mini story in here, where Orion and Seagrin are swimming through the ocean, and you fucking find, apparently, Cthulhu <laughs> at the <laughs> bottom of this big sea pit, and it's Walt Simonson, and he's... For me, best known, he did New Gods as well. I think he did one of the classic stories of the 80s, a run of the New Gods, but he's best known to me as a Thor artist. Visually, it was a treat. I mean, he's got this style that's kind of somewhere between modern comics and Jack Kirby. He's really good at it. It's just this really quick, short story of them just kind of going through here and basically getting into this thing. And they do these puns because the story is called Teeth of the Sea. And you can see the Teeth of the Sea is this sea monster. The sea is literally, it's S-E-E, -E, but then they boom tube out of there and we go over to another story, which is actually done by, well, we, actually there's a couple of pinups because Jack Kirby loved fucking doing pinups. If you look at the classic comics, towards the end of the book, there's just a pinup of the Fantastic Four. He just did a full page. Here's a pinup, guys. Kind of little thing. But there's a Kirby story at the back that's the one that's inked by Coletta, and it's just a classic Kirby story of this character who I've never heard of. I think his name is Lonar. I've never heard of him either. Literally never ever heard of this guy before. It's Lonar and the story of him getting his horse. He comes across Orion in his underwear, which is a little weird. 
<laughs> because he's just literally out in the middle of a field and it's just this whole hey i found a horse it's a special issue i honestly like the new gods more when they're done by other people <laughs> if it wasn't for a special i wouldn't have honestly picked this one up other than to give it a look through it was good new gods but the new gods are kind of like a weird kirby side project nobody knows what to do with them and there's a reason for that and they're harder than thor to write they're really hard to understand yeah they're really really strange i I think this one does a pretty good job of explaining the basics of the new gods to you. Like, I feel you got a sense for who Orion is and who Calabac is. I actually felt sorry for Calabac by the end of the story, which I was not expecting to do. I think it's true for most anthologies here. When you get the stories like this, they get progressively worse. (laughs) (laughs) And then Lonar. (laughs) Orion of New Genesis was pretty decent. Teeth of the Sea looked real good, but the writing was kind of shit. Yep. I mean, it was nice to see an original Kirby little two or three page story there, but... But I have no idea why it was there. I think they just want to show you yeah. some Kirby. And this was probably one that was not going to take an entire issue. They're like, do we have any Kirby stories? Well, we got this one. It's about Lonar. Who? Who? <laughs> just put it in. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a horse and a naked guy. All right. Toss it oh, in. Okay. Carissa, you probably are not as familiar with the new gods, maybe, as Matt and I. I suck. Oh, my God. <laughs> I will yell. Everyone needs to know from the far reaches of the galaxy how much this sucks. <laughs> so hard. I hated it. I Yes, some of the tentacle BC, CBCs, yeah, they were drawn nice, but I was so bored. So bored. The only thing good I was going to say that about it is that I like when they take old comics and throw them in at the end of, like, the current run of that issue. They did it for Guardians ones recently before the movie came out. I think it's good, especially when you're getting a lot of new fans come in to show them back to the basics, the roots. I think that's always really neat and interesting and you can see how it's changed and developed and stuff like that so that's cool i like that aspect of it but oh god i do not want to read this crappy book again (laughs) it was long and shitty and just (laughs) it was so boring so boring i did not care about it at all (laughs) let's rate this one i like the first story the other two i could have done without they were there for the art (laughs) mostly but i'll give it a three calibac nine knocked out teeth mostly for the first story and just for the art i mean just don't read the words to the second and third story bravo i'm giving it one and a half just for the end part because i like throwing in the past so people can get some of that so one and a half genuine golden age grabbers generations banner hulk and totally awesome hulk number one the Vanishing Point, written by Greg Pak, pencils and inks by Matteo Rufagini. Rufa I'm gonna go with colors by <laughs> Dono Sanchez Almara. Dude, Banner gets his name, but Cho's just awesome Hulk. That's messed up. So this has Cho, and he says he's just leaving DC. So first of all, kudos to you creators of this book for actually placing him in a timeline that we can understand. So right <laughs> after Secret Empire, it says he was just leaving DC. So thank you for that. That makes my nerd twitchiness subside some he's jumping and all of a sudden he's somewhere where he doesn't know where he's at and he has some weirdness feeling and he's like where am i this is not right this is not where i should have landed he finds himself coming upon banner who he recognizes and thinks banner is dead 
and Banner's being shot at by a bunch of tanks and stuff. Very classic. He tries to go interact with him because he doesn't know what's going on, but he knows that this is not good. Banner doesn't recognize him, and so he's trying to figure that out, yet try to save him and dissuade, and Cho's doing his Cho thing where like, hold on, let me check this out. Okay, they're unmanned. Go at it. And this is classic Banner Hulk. It's like, who doesn't give a fuck? You know, and just smash. Hulk don't give a fuck. So Cho helps him escape, helps get him away from that and escape. And they're hiding in a cave and Cho's trying to figure out what's going on and talk to him. Banner doesn't give a crap. He's just like, who the hell are you? What do I know you? How can you control? So this Banner does not know Cho at all. He doesn't remember ever meeting Cho. He doesn't remember Cho curing him. None of that. A lot of this issue is just Cho trying to help him and deal with that. The people who are shooting at Banner apparently waking up a kaiju of (laughs) some sort out in the middle of Death Valley. And it comes rampaging. I don't know, maybe it's left over from Monsters Unleashed. Don't know. Cho does what Cho does, and he tries to assess the situation, take control, and think smart about it. So he's trying to tell Banner, because he doesn't know what's going on with Banner. He's like, you go get those civilians out of that diner. I'm going to deal with this. This Banner does not like being talked to that way, because it's old Banner. (laughs) And Hulk don't like that. And so he doesn't listen. He hulks out. They fight, and fight the thing, and fight each other. And it's just a big Hulk cluster F. Then Banner Hulk gives Cho, like, a talking to this is not a gif this is and it cuts off as he changes and there's like an explosion and i like how chose i know what he was gonna say and you get hints that cho is starting not to be able to control himself as the hulk he's starting to see little changes and little glitches i guess it's like banner telling him stuff giving him clues and him coming to terms with what's happening i like that when banner is describing the hulk he's using the exact imagery that cho has of the monster in the trunk as he's driving along i think that's a really cool insight that they have the same thing something happens there's like fire going on an explosion and Cho is saying how he feels himself transporting or leaving wherever he just was this time displacement but he still feels his skin burning and that's how it ends it's like he went back in time had this interaction with Banner who doesn't know him like old Banner and told him like yeah you're cursed dude and now Cho's determined to get rid of it again doesn't make sense because I like Cho as the Hulk so I don't know what's going on with that it seemed like for generations that that was a pretty quick are they only doing one off or is he going to jump to a different time period again no each character is going to get their one shot with their mentor type person uh, the next issue is for Totally Awesome Hulk. It's Return to Planet Hulk. And I'm like, oh, I'm curious about that. Well, that would sort of make sense if Cho is thinking that he is cursed with this uncontrollable rage that's going to get him. He might choose to go away. It was interesting. I mean, it wasn't great. It was a little bit disjointed some parts. and It was kind of sometimes not the easiest to follow. And I feel like they could have definitely, with those characters involved, I feel like they could have delved a little deeper in conversation-wise. I feel like they could have done a little bit more with it. I mean, it is only a single issue, but I think they do a couple things really well. First of all, in the very beginning, they're telling you this is a what if. This is beyond time. This isn't in any particular continuity. Don't necessarily worry too much about where this fits in. This is just almost like a one-off story. And I feel like each character here is learning from the other, which I think is what you're supposed to get from it. That Banner is learning from Cho a little bit how to control things, but Cho is also learning from Banner that you can't control it. So I think that's interesting. And I enjoy Old School Hulk 
just smashing tanks and wrecking shops. So I didn't think it was the greatest issue ever, but I thought for the space that they had, they did pretty decent. Matt, I think you have opinions. I was whelmed. I was expecting it to be like this when I first heard about Generations because Marvel, I mean, if they have the opportunity to do something asked, they will do something asked. It wasn't a half-assed job. It was what it was, but I expected the book literally to be this story like this. It's not deep. It's not anything world-changing or anything else like that. It just seemed about, hey, here's a line of special books that are going to show kind of a little bit about the characters that are present, but give them a little bit of kind of showing the legacy. Having seen the first First of the Generations book, I'm more interested in the whole legacy thing than I am Generations. Because the Generations book, the art wasn't, it wasn't bad. It was competent and the writing was competent, but it's a pointless story that really isn't going to probably have too super much of a bearing on pretty much anything. And I always hate those whole, oh, let's cut the character out of time and put him here for an issue and then throw him back in there. They might refer to it once or twice in the future, but this book is pretty pointless. Yeah, I kind of hope that they explain what's actually doing that to them. We'd find that more interesting. See, I'm hoping it's the fact that the Marvel Universe currently is fucked beyond repair, and reality itself is kind of jittery and not really solidified. So that's what's causing them to, like, meet up with their other selves. He says he was leaving DC, right? So something may happen with the Cosmic Cube at the end that's rejiggering things, maybe? I also really like the panel where the helicopters are coming, and Hulk does his clap and shoots them back with the sonic boom that happens that was pretty awesome yeah. yeah it was good if you just want to see some old school hulk it was good old school hulk just as a, a quickie sometimes afternoon delight you know don't underrate it <laughs> huh, is that what that song is about? yes <laughs> <laughs> that's what that song is about yeah yeah so there's these songs that i just don't ever think about because the only time i ever see them is when they're on anchorman it's about boning your lady during the middle of the day there's an old school threadless shirt if you ever followed threadless it's two unicorns doing it like horses do from behind. The shirt is titled Afternoon Delight. <laughs> the more you know. All right. It wasn't bad, but it's not going to go down in history or anything. Yeah. You ready to rate it? Sure. I'm going to give this three and a half Hulk smash. <laughs> I will give it three and a half We're Not Heroes, We're Prison Guards. I'll give it three and a half Hulk smash your stupid face. <laughs> there is some good Hulk smashing in here. Alrighty. So it's not me. It's Matt. <laughs> Matt, you sound so different. <laughs> Maybe this week I'm Matt. I was Ryan once another week. <laughs> You're exploring. It's okay. It's like second college. It's fine. <laughs> second college. Sex criminals does that to you, kids. So those were the books we read this week. You can find all kinds of nerd shenanigans, including our other podcast on original streaming media, Cut the Cord, at fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page. Which this week, uh, there is a review of an anime show that I reviewed, so check that out. I'm sure it'll be negative. He hates anime. Listen to the review and find out what I actually said. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music. On Stitcher. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Be sure to come back next week for another episode. But until then, keep reading, nerds. <laughs>